My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number nine of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my fascinating conversation with Iboga facilitator Trisha Eastman. In Gabon, they give you very, very, very large quantities of medicine. Although there are different types of initiations and works that do work in lower dosages, and there are specific lineages that aren't necessarily trying to, um, you know, for instance, um, the the Bwiti from the jungle, which is a lot of the, the like Mitsogo, the tribes that are referred to as the pygmy tribes, such as the Babongo, the Gonde Misoko, which is the tradition that I'm uh, initiated in. Those are Bwiti from the jungle. And in those traditions, they are trying to create a death experience, like like an ego death in a sense. So like they're trying to create the condition of like having this profound mystical experience. And so they give you as much medicine as as they can. They actually even like stick a pin in you. And if you can't feel the pin, then they know you've had enough medicine. So basically, Trisha Eastman is a multidimensional medicine woman badass. She's the founder of her company, Psychedelic Journeys, and she's been leading retreats with Iboga, 5-MeO-DMT, and psilocybin, outside of the U.S., of course, for many years now. And she's supported about 1,600 people through Iboga Journeys at this point. And it's the Iboga medicine we're going to focus on in this conversation. And in this episode, she shares about her journey going to Gabon and getting initiated into the Bwiti tribes, which is where this medicine comes from, and how she received permission to work with and serve this iboga medicine, which is just super interesting to hear about her story and her journey. Trisha has also created a nonprofit called Ancestral Heart to address the impacts of globalization of ancestral traditions as a result of the resurgence of psychedelics and spirituality in Western culture. And as you'll hear in this conversation, she's really passionate about and dedicated to the sustainability of sacred plant medicines, as well as reciprocity. So about a week before this interview, I actually had the honor and privilege to journey with the Iboga medicine for my very first time. And I didn't have a chance to tell her that before we started the interview. So I just brought it up in the interview. And, you know, because it was so fresh and it was just such a novel experience, and I was really just still integrating the experience. I shared quite a bit about my journey in this conversation, and it was really one of the most intense and challenging yet incredible journeys of my life and just such a transformational experience that I was really just still wrapping my mind around and felt so inspired to share what transpired through that experience. So it wasn't really my intention to like hijack the conversation or make it all about me, <laughs> but I, I do think it made for an interesting conversation in terms of the the bit that I did share about my experience. And because it was just so freaking intense, I was just so curious about what this experience would be like in Gabon. And so I ended up jumping right into that with her and then realized I actually needed to back up and rewind and start more at the beginning of her journey, which started before she went to Gabon to get initiated. 
So I actually cut quite a bit out from this conversation because it was like two hours long and there was so much more I could have shared about my own experience, but I wanted to keep it focused on my guest, Trisha Eastman, who's really just a wealth of knowledge and wisdom. And I really just appreciate her perspective on things. And I'll have to get Trisha back on for another episode once her book is launched and her retreat center that she's been developing in the Azores, which is an island off the coast of Portugal that she's been developing and building with all these epic proprietary building materials that she's been working on. And once that whole project is up and running, uh, I'll definitely get her back on. And I had to leave that whole entire part of the conversation out. But um, yeah, she's just amazing. She's got her foot in all sorts of awesome projects. And I'll also be speaking with a couple of other aboga experts more around what we know from the limited research that has been done on aboga around the underlying mechanisms for which aboga works in the brain and body. So stay tuned for that. And you can also find Trisha's full bio and all the links to find her and work with her on the episode page on my website. And I'll include that link in the show notes. And just in case you haven't yet received my playlist for Psychedelic Journeys and Beyond, and there's actually four different playlists that I share, you can swipe that along with my free eight-day microdosing course on the freebies tab of my website, livefreelauraD.com. And lastly, I played with a new format for sharing music in this episode. Trisha received permission for me to share some traditional Bwiti music from Ibondo that's just so beautiful. So for this episode, instead of sharing a full song at the end, I share a couple of short interludes woven into the conversation so you can tune into the frequency of this medicine tradition. And I'll share links to this album if you also want to purchase it on Bandcamp, as well as all other resources mentioned in this conversation in the show notes. So one more side note, Trisha was using a mic on her Apple headphones and every time it rubbed against her hair, it created a bit of a scratchy noise. So we did our best to remove that. Um, and again, I'm still learning and growing. But this episode is really just so interesting. And so I, I hope you tune in all the way to the end. Okay, without any further ado, here is my wonderful conversation with Iboga facilitator Trisha Eastman. Trisha, it's so nice to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to drop in with me today. Mm, such an honor to be here and to connect. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. You know, the last time we dropped in, we spent an hour on the phone and I know that there's going to be so much goodness shared here. So I'd love to just dive right in. And I think a good place to start would be to ask you the backstory around how you found yourself in a foreign place like Gabon and coming face to face with the Bwiti tribe and how that led you uh, to being initiated into three lineages. Well, I will say that that uh, 
Buiti, which is from Equatorial Africa um, in, in Gabon, um, is, is a serious type of initiation. It's um, very long, usually several weeks, and um, involves uh, deep cleansing rituals and purification rituals. And then um, there's um, a long period, usually like one week is dedicated to ceremonies, um, and usually two or three nights working with um, Iboga, which is the sacrament of the Buiti, which is considered uh, the Mount Everest of entheogens. It's one of the most intense um, medicines and also, um, I, I believe, one of the most profound. Um, and it took me a really long time to get to the point of um, going to Gabon, to uh, meet with the Buiti because you're not only risking malaria, you're not only risking potential, uh, you know, complications with medical facilities and, and things like that, not close by, you're literally in the middle of the jungle. It's one of the only countries in Africa that is still mostly jungle and, and where most of the people living um, which is, it's a very small amount of people. It's the size of Colorado, but there's only 1.4 million people living in the entire country. Um, and you're in the middle of the jungle. And, um, you know, if something were to happen to you, um, you know, it would be very hard to get, you know, to get help. And so, um, you know, I took a long time and um, when I finally got to the point where it was time for me to do my initiations, um, I, I really tuned into spirit and I really asked and I looked for the signs. And um, yeah, I, I won't say that it was something I wanted to do. I feel like there's a lot of initiations I've done. And I would say even like um, my work with the Mexica, which is, you know, from Mexico connected to my lineage, which are the original like Aztecs and Mayans. Um, you know, when I when I was called to do that initiation, it was the same thing. It was like <laughs> my soul said, oh, it's time to go do this. And, you know, obviously my ego is like, oh, gosh, I don't want to do that. Uh, but, you know, it was just it was mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should back up for a second. Um, so yeah. you were working with Iboga before you went to Gabon and yeah. worked with it there. OK. Yeah, I worked at it at the clinic in um, in Mexico. Mm -hmm. and Which how was in 2015, six years ago. And so what called you to initially explore this particular plant medicine? It's, it's quite interesting because I had a couple friends that um, started working with the plant. One of them lived with a 10th generation Misoko in Costa Rica. And I was immediately attracted. And at this time, this is before, you know, microdosing was even a word. Um, this person had give me, given me a small amount of it to microdose with. And I knew that I was supposed to work with this plant. And a year later, I met Martin Polanco, who owns a clinic in Mexico called Crossroads, where they do treatments for addiction uh, using abogaine, which is the alkaloid from Iboga. And they put you through uh, a detox that happens over seven days. And at the end, 
you uh, no longer have cravings for opiates. It's quite a profound medicine. And he wanted to introduce a weekend protocol for people who wanted to come for psycho-spiritual purposes, where they would go and receive the medicine. And then at the end, so you would, you would be in the clinic, and then you would go to this beach house in Baja, and you would receive um, 5-MeO-DMT. And so um, when he started this program, I asked him, you know, do you think that Iboga would cure eating disorders? And I had struggled with eating disorders my whole entire life. And he said he wasn't certain if it would, but he would be willing to, to test it out and mm-hmm. see if it worked. And he actually put me through the program at no charge as, you know, in a sense, an experiment. And I had the most profound experience um, ever in my life because I always felt really um, like there was something I was holding back that, you know, I never fully understood how to love and accept all the parts of myself. And it was after I had this experience where I had this unification with source consciousness, uh, you know, a point of singularity. And um, in that space, I just started crying and I just bawled for hours and hours in gratitude. Like, how could I not completely love myself when I realized that I'm part of all of this, all of this beauty, all, you know, the whole thing, the entire universe. And it was, you know, one of those really profound transpersonal experiences. And what I did after that was I, I said to the medicine, you know, thank you. Thank you. I I'm, I'm here of service. I want to help others, um, in, in, you know, that are suffering as I did for so many years. And, um, I left it at that. And within less than three weeks, Martine asked me to facilitate the psycho-spiritual program at Crossroads. And, um, you know, I, had no experience. I I had experience as a healer. I had a a vast background in everything from Reiki to Tantra to pranic healing to, um, you know, reading human design. I mean, just like, you know, I studied everything and somatic therapy. uh, And, and I, I said, yes, Um, I I would love, you know, and I I was trained, of course. So I was, it wasn't like I was stepping in there with no experience and there's a whole team of doctors. But when I got in there, I was, I was really humbled at, you know, how little the medicine was being used in a sacred way in what I was starting to learn and understand was um, the tradition of Bwiti. And I really wanted to bring the aspects into the clinic, such as the music, such as some of the rituals um, in preparation. And um, I believed that, that it actually was part of this um, experience. And so I started to study that and start to connect to uh, traditional uh, Bwiti healers who uh, were either in Gabon or in France or in Europe. That's where most of them that I, that I connected with lived. And so, um, and, and I went on this deep journey of um, really studying and understanding the tradition so that I could, you know, be in integrity myself and in serving this plant that it 
given me so much. And at the same time, I also um, started creating my own retreats. Mm -hmm. And I started creating my own retreats in 2016, which was a year after I started working at Crossroads. And um, my first retreats were in Mexico, working with Iboga, working with uh, traditional, traditionally trained uh, Buiti facilitators. Um, and I brought um, Anima from uh, Gabon, and he he's the first person that initiated me into Buiti uh, in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. And so you went to Gabon, you were, you know, immersed in the Buiti tribe, and then did you ask to be initiated? How does that initiation process work? Is anyone who's who feels ready and feels the call, or do you go through the full experience that they support you through, and is that the initiation like, do you, did you have to receive permission from them to be able to hold the medicine and carry the medicine and serve it in the way that you are now? I'm really glad that you asked that question because there's a really blurred line in our community around what it means to be initiated versus, you know, working, working with Iboga. And um, in Gabon, um, pretty much anytime you go and work with Iboga, you're doing so in an initiation format. There isn't really a psycho-spiritual, although there are what they call like healings, which are are works that usually um, are much shorter and it's not a full initiation. Usually if people are coming to work with Iboga in Gabon, they're they're doing so for an initiation. But, um, you know, I could talk about two hours about why a lot of people wouldn't be ready for that process. There's a lot of different things in the culture that are very different, that are sometimes very hard for Westerners to understand and can even cause problems. I mean, you know, just like some of the basic stuff, um, is like um, the practice of animal sacrifice, which um, can be used in the rituals, which um, could be traumatizing to someone who, like for me, when I started um, this work, I uh, was just a full devote vegan, although I've I've added some stuff, but I'm still mostly plant-based. But if, if I had seen, you know, when I first started an animal being sacrificed, I would have been traumatized. Um, but there's, it goes much, much deeper than that. There are many other aspects of that. Um, but when you get initiated, that's like day one of the journey and, um, to become a NEMA, um, NEMA means that you can give initiations to others. That's typically the destination that someone in Gabon would, um, look at as a benchmark for someone for serving, the medicine. Um, that process takes 10 years. And um, that's like minimum, you know, if you ask uh, the NEMA that's that that would initiate you, they would say, you know, when the medicine says is when you're when you're able to have that that title. Um, and, it, and there's a, a passing of power because there's, there's a power in the altar. There's a power in the ancestral lineage. And when you um, graduate from that process, and it's, I mean, that's not even the right word to use, but when you, when you step into that role, that power gets passed onto you, which allows you to have the power of the Buiti. Um, and, and so what, what I got 
when I went through my initiations was I received several different blessings from my teachers, which was one blessing was to serve the medicine to others for healings. And so what you can do is what, what they would call our psycho-spiritual work um, that my partner, um, jo uh, Dr. Joseph Barsulia, Sulia and I do, it, it would be called um, more healings, even because we're not taking people through an initiatory process. And mm -hmm. usually we're doing a very similar format to what is done in Gabon, but it's um, adapted mm. um, to really fit um, a more psycho-spiritual setting. And there's a lot more preparation and integration, which you don't really get that um, in Gabon. And um, so the first, the first blessing I got was the blessing to have the medicine, which is the most important blessing of all, because you can't obviously serve the medicine unless you've been given the blessing to to have the medicine. And then the other blessings that I received were access to different tools and medicines within the Bwiti that allow me to do certain types of healing, working with the Akume torch, which is a torch used, um, I would call it, you know, I hate to like, uh, I, I love making analogies, but I, I don't even think it, it, it could compare, but it's like sage on steroids. Mm -hmm. So um, the Akume torch is made from the resin of the sacred tree in the jungle. And then it's mixed with, gosh, probably at least 30 or more different sacred plants in the jungle. And they use this torch for clearing dark spirits out. Mm -hmm. And there's techniques of how you do that. And so, you know, I, I work with that um, in my work. Um, and then the other thing is um, the journeying process, which is part of the Gonde Masoko lineage. And in that lineage, you receive um, like certain uh, training to work on the psychology of the individual. And so that's like very specific because you're working with someone's psyche and it takes many years of training and practice before, um, you know, I would say that you could call yourself someone who could, could practice that particular type of, of work. And so I also received the blessings for, for mm. that kind of work as well. Mm, beautiful. I'm curious about what the format and the framework looks like for an initiation in Gabon. Is it multiple days? Are you, I mean, I can only imagine, and I haven't told you this yet, but since we last spoke, I actually had my first experience. It was about 24 hours that I was very deep in it working with a facilitator. There was actually three facilitators guiding the journey for me. Um, I worked with alkaloids from the iboga plant. I had a paramedic mm -hmm. checking my vitals every 20 minutes for 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I definitely thought multiple times, like, I could not imagine doing this in Gabon right now in a foreign country and just such a out of my comfort zone element on top of it. It was one of the most challenging and intense and also amazing experiences of my life. I'm definitely very much so in the thick of integration still. I feel like the biggest reset is happening in in my body, in my mind. I'm I'm so grateful for the experience, um, and so I'm I, I definitely have thought multiple times of like, what does this look like to experience this in Gabon? Yeah, I mean, I just want to agree with you in the sense like um, it's one of the hardest journeys within yourself. 
And, you know, when you add the other elements of, you know, potentially malaria, potentially other forms, I mean, there's just the list is endless of Mm -hmm. tropical parasites and different sicknesses and things like that. And just the conditions are really intense. And uh, so I would say that, you know, first of all, congratulations. Um, You know, I'm really, really excited for you because um, this is a medicine that stays with you for such Mm. a long time. And it's going to keep working on you for like the next year. You're going to still feel it working on you. There's nothing like it. Sometimes I even say it's almost like doing a hundred plant medicine ceremonies in one one, uh, or usually it's over two days, but, um, I'll let you speak to that and I'll, I'll add something. Yeah. I feel it so much. You know, I, I also feel very grateful for 20 years of working with psychedelics under my belt to prepare me for this, you know, 10 solid years of ayahuasca journeys. I feel like really prepared me for this, what feels like one of the most significant, and I'll use the word initiation in just the context of, you know, passing through a portal into, you know, what feels like a very new chapter of my life. And I passed through that portal on the eve of my birthday into the 37th year on this planet as I'm transitioning in, in so many ways in my life. And so it was really the perfect time. And I'd been calling in this experience for so long. And Um, It was just the perfect alignment and the perfect timing. And I do feel so much so that this medicine is going to be with me for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the medicines that, you know, I think this is why integration is so important because Mm -hmm. it, it, number one, it, it, it really just like humbles you to your core, like anything in there, you know, it's like, it kind of like some people have even said, like, I feel like I had a lobotomy or something, you know, cause it just like, it just clears you out. level. It resets the neurotransmitters. It works on every neurotransmitting system in the body. It um, reformats basically your brain. I mean, it works specifically on the the language center of the brain. It works. um, I mean, it really works on pretty much everything. I mean, there's, there's studies on it working on dementia and um, it kills parasites in the body. For instance, um, one thing that's really incredible about this medicine is that um, most people have to take really intense pharmaceuticals to get rid of candida and it clears all the candida out of your body. So you Mm -hmm. end up with, you know, no matter how grueling your journey was um, just this, sense of nothingness of 
emptiness. You know, it's really, to me, a very Buddhic medicine because you really understand what that feeling of a blank slate feels like. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the most important thing is that if you're going to invest the time and the energy to do that kind of work, to really gracefully approach the integration. And I say this as everyone here um, is listening, but also to support you and your integration, that everything you do stepping out of the medicine, it imprints into your, you know, into this new blank slate that you've just created Mm -hmm. for yourself. And so you get to basically like the slower you take it, the more careful you take it, the, the more that you pause and you think before doing something you may have done in the past that was like maybe led to a specific habitual pattern that you know is not a good road, the better off you're going to be. It's really going to stick with you. There's this beauty um, that the, the Bwiti call uh, mabondo. Mabondo means grace. And um, Mm. what happens is after your ceremony, you get this runway of Mubundo. And Mm. the idea is like, take advantage of that. Like, like Mm -hmm. the idea is like, in Gabon, people are very poor. And so they have to save their money or, you know, do some works to be able to go and get initiated. And when you get initiated, um, you, you, you've moved up in society. Like it means something in, in Gabon to be an initiate. And it's, and it's also, um, an entry point into the family. So you're, you, you've, you've become part of the family of Bwiti. And in Gabon, uh, you you go and you do that so that you can get those chances, so that you can increase your luck, so you can make a better life for yourself. And so all of these people who know, you know, they come from like, you know, nothing, they know that they can make something for themselves when they do this initiation, if they really take advantage of that time. And so I say the same for, for you and for anyone else out there who, you know, is either working with this medicine or you know, being called to work with the medicine is that it's a great opportunity for you um, and and a great blessing. And it's, and one of the things that um, was the biggest distinction for me after I did my first uh, works with Iboga was um, just really, it really pulled me inward. Like I felt like Mm -hmm. so deeply inward for many, many months. And Uh, from a a biological level, the medicine actually does that to you. So literally, um, I was at the Abogain conference in Tepoztlan in 2017, and I can't remember the name of the doctor, so I apologize, but I'll, sh- I'll share a link or something with you so we can put it in the notes. Uh, but uh, there, this doctor took people who were doing um, abogain treatments and took pictures of the auric field and showed these, these people in addiction. And their, their field was all like broken up and holy, and it, it didn't look so good. And then while they were on the medicine, it showed the auric field completely pulled inward. So literally the medicine hmm. pulls the auric field completely inward and, and then it regenerates. And then after you're finished, it actually expands the auric field. 
mm. around the body. Mm. Now I can't compare it to like ayahuasca or any of um, you know the other medicines because I haven't seen those those photography mm-hmm. of of that before and after. But I would assume that the other medicines would actually expand because many of them are about mm-hmm. expansion as Riboga is very much um, contraction. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's really w- so much of what I'm noticing, actually. I'm, I'm grateful. I'm really giving myself so much space for this integration. I'm slowing down. I'm also feeling so inward. My meditations are so dropped in and so deep right now. And I noticed after the journey, I had this very distinct voice and being able to see a pattern, a pattern that I had been repeating for so many years. And the voice was like, that's the pattern. Look at that. Do you want to keep choosing that? Or do you want to choose a new pattern? It was just this amazing witnessing. And and one of the ways I've been describing it is like, I feel this sense of, I've been using the word neutrality, but I think the better word is equanimity. It's just mm-hmm. like this, this place of non-reactivity, of just observing and so much centeredness in my in my process right now, and I'm I'm just so grateful for that. Um, so I'm curious, you know, I'm sure there's such a wide range of the way that people serve this medicine. I can only imagine. In the in the experience that I had, there was a paramedic there. You know, we did an EKG before the experience. They were using my body weight as a as a measure for how much to you know start offering me in terms of like the amount of medicine. Is that very Western? I mean, I can't imagine that there have paramedics in Gabon, you know, checking heart rate. I mean, it must be such a different experience. You know, I was laying in a bed. I couldn't move for for many hours. I was really in it for 24 hours. Is that a similar kind of setup going to Gabon and having that experience there? Is it multiple days? I'm just so curious. Yeah, I mean, what I found, I just want you to 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 make a comment about the um, type of care that you received. And um, there is a certain percentage of people that have abnormalities of the heart that puts them in a high risk group. And one of the biggest things you can do and actually makes um, Iboga once you you know, because there's there's a lot of information floating around about like safety with Iboga and a lot of the deaths that have been recorded are people who are in clinics who had like massive addictions and were using amphetamines and heroin and all kinds of cocktails of different uppers, downers, benzodiazepines, everything. And, you know, they were kind of in a sense, you know, on death's doorstep. And mm-hmm. so when a healthy individual comes to this medicine, the things you have to really look out for are specific things related to um, specific heart conditions, certain uh, mental um, conditions um, that can be evaluated with proper screening. And those that are not, you know, aren't really going to get the full benefits from the medicine because of these things can be screened out. And we do um, in all of our retreats have a doctor and we do require EKGs Um, Mm -hmm. because it's kind of a no brainer. It's like, if we can save some lives and I have had a significant amount of people that have gotten screened out, it's, it's surprising. And in Gabon, you would go to the medicine. Um, there would not be a doctor on site, but these practitioners of the medicine, these Nima and, uh, uh, 
Nima Kambo, which is uh, kind of the father of the village, the highest level of of Buiti that you could get. You know, they've been working with the medicine for you know, 10, 20, 50 years, and they're so connected to the spirit of the medicine. And when I work with the medicine, it talks to me. It tells me what dosage to give certain people and tells me certain things about that person that I need to to watch out for. However, I need to listen and I need to be present within myself to be able to receive those things. Now, most people, you know, unless they've had a really high level of experience and training um, working with that medicine probably wouldn't get that information. Um, so I would say that in Gabon, the people who are working with the medicine, there are very little deaths. There are deaths though. Um, a lot of the deaths have to do with other complications such as malaria, um, which is very common. We actually lost one of our friends who went to Gabon during our initiation in 2018. And he um, was in a different village than us and he contracted uh, malaria and um, he didn't make it. Yeah, you have to be in, in Gabon. Um, they give you very, very, very large quantities of medicine. Although there are different types of initiations and works that do work in lower dosages. And there are specific lineages that aren't necessarily trying to, um, you know, for instance, um, the, the Buiti from the jungle, which is a lot of the, the like Mitsogo, the um, tribes that are referred to as the pygmy tribes, such as the Babongo, um, the Gonde Misoko, which is the tradition that I'm uh, initiated in, those are Buiti from the jungle. And in those traditions, they are trying to create a death experience, like, like an ego death in a sense. So like they're trying to create the condition of like having this profound mm -hmm. mystical experience. And so they give you as much medicine as as they can, they actually even like stick a pin in you. And if you can't feel the pin, then they know you've had enough medicine. Like they, they keep like feeding you medicine. Basically the, the book, Daniel Pinchbeck explains it the best breaking open the head until you kind of crack open. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, you know, with that level of training, um, you know, they are pushing some very dangerous edges, but most of the time, you know, people make it through those experiences, mm. but they're quite intense. Mm. I had someone tell me that they went through um, this experience in Gabon and there was a lot of water involved, that they had water poured on their head for multiple days in a row. I was like, whoa, that's intense. Yeah. Have you heard of that? Yeah. So um, in in most of Buiti initiations and ritual, there are different forms of bathing rituals. And the idea is that um, the, the bath rituals are designed to return you back into that clean state, like when you were in the womb and prepare you to receive the medicine. And many of the times that you're doing those rituals, you're making confessions. So you're confessing all the things, um, wrong that you've done. And most of them are things that we've done to ourselves. Um, so, you know, really going through and the more thorough, 
of um, these confessions that you've made, the easier your journey is going to be with the medicine. Uh, mm. So they, you start off and there's many different herbs and, and you go into the jungle. And um, when, when you work with the plants in the jungle, it's very important to get permissions and all the Bwiti that I've worked with have, t- have take that very seriously, and and I and I do as well. And what that means is that there's very specific div- divination techniques, and you ask permission to take certain plants from the jungle, and you'll go to different trees and you'll harvest different barks. And within all of these plants are the sacred spirits called the genies. And the genies are what what are doing the healing on you when you're doing these these bathing rituals. So there'll be um, different clays, red clay, and different plants, and they'll be prepared in a specific way with specific ritual and music and usually a candle is lit to have the element of fire and you'll you'll go in and you'll you'll clean yourself and you can also make prayers to the spirits of the water in in Bwiti they believe the the water spirits are the mermaids and so mm. we'll call in the mermaid spirits and the mermaid spirits will assist in the cleansing of the individual and then after your um, when you go through these rituals, there's like different, like for instance, when you're doing the preparations, there's these smoke baths that you receive called Ifulu, where they wrap you in blankets and it's like your own personal sweat lodge, except for way hotter. And you literally have a fire underneath you and they're burning different like things like sacred plants, kind of like you know, that creates smokes to clear um, the darkness out. And uh, and the women, I don't know what the men wear, but the women wear all black um, when they're, when like, like a sarong. And then you have all these blankets around you and, and you do that and you alternate between that and the baths. And you do quite a few baths. You usually do, depending on the initiation, but you could do like easily 10 baths in a week, you know, I mean, Mm. that's a little more on the extreme side, but I would say at least one in the morning and one at night, at least several times before you go into the initiation. And then you also take vomitif plants, which make you throw up Mm -hmm. and you do all of that for like a week. Um, usually a week, it could be longer in Mm -hmm. preparation to work with the aboga and go into the Mm the initiation sequence. And those are different. And there's different rituals and different um, things within that sequence. And of course, the the bathing rituals are also used um, like when a when a, a baby is born in the village, the first thing they do is they take them to the river and they perform this ritual to to clean the baby. And, and so in your practice, uh, you know, in within a more uh, Western model, are you also using some of these these plants, these other plants that are native to Gabon? Um, and how do you feel about bringing these these plants that are non-native and non-local to the places that you're serving them? Is that a consideration for you? Yes. So, you know, right now, Bwiti is, you know, one tiny country and and Iboga only grows in that country. It's it only grows in an equatorial region at sea level. There's a very specific soil consistency, a very specific environment. 
And so every day I think about the future of Bwiti and, and how even my actions could impact the future of Bwiti to make sure that I'm doing it in a good way. And I ask, you know, obviously when you ask permissions to take certain plants um, or if you're asking your Nima or Nima Kambo, the person that initiated you um, for permissions to have certain plants, like to send you certain plants, um, they're also, you know, asking those permissions as well. And so some of the things that I use, uh, one of them is called, its nickname is Pygmy Paste and it's like this mixture of different clays and herbs. And when you're doing the ritual of journeying the individual, um, you know, doing the psychology, the psychological work that, that I was talking to you about earlier, we put that on the forehead to open up the third eye and it, it helps to enhance the visions and help the person to, to journey. And it's, it's prayed with. And so I use that in the in the ceremony and then I use the akume torch which is the the torch um, from the resins of the akume tree and that comes from the jungle in Gabon um, and then I use the clays that are used in Gabon for the bath rituals um, it's okay to harvest any plant from any region and what you'll find is that most of the plants are the same species, but it's the version of your local region. And so if I was going into the woods, I live in the Malibu mountains and I was asking for permission, I would go to the tree and I would take a machete and I would just take a little uh, chip of bark. And if the, the chip lands outward, then it means I have permission. Uh, to take medicine from that. And I would just shave a little bit of bark. And it's okay to um, use local plants to make up the, the medicines for the baths. Um, and the genies are there. That They're the ones doing the work. So it doesn't matter whether they're genies from Gabon or they're genies from Costa Rica, where I do retreats, or Ibiza, mm. or, you know, wherever. Uh, Mexico. And then the other medicines that I use um, from Gabon, of course, you know, the plant, iboga. And um, iboga is a plant that I am concerned about the future of its sustainability. Um, mm. It is considered a national treasure in Gabon um, and it's protected. Uh, but there is a lot of things happening in the black market. A lot of elephant poachers that are selling uh, medicines online. And, you know, the, the sad part is like a lot of people that are getting stuff online aren't even getting real medicine. So who knows what you're taking and whether it's safe for you to be ingesting it. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we have to look at, um, not to digress too much, is like when you have shows like... Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, where one episode reaches like millions of people and, you know, they're promoting it by putting billboards up in the New York subways and all over Los Angeles. Um, 
that is not the way to necessarily, like, I don't feel like medicine should be displayed in that way. I think there's, you know, like talking about it one-on-one, having a conversation on a podcast is one thing, but, but we do have to start thinking about the future. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm really concerned with, I do feel like this medicine is going to become more popular. It's definitely not for everybody, but I, I do feel um, it's definitely going to grow because the whole psychedelic movement is just moving at such an insane pace. Mm-hmm. And I've already seen how the toads have been decimated in the Sonora because of, you know, ESPN running cartoons with Mike Tyson, you know, mm-hmm. showing him smoking a toad and having a psychedelic experience and all of these things. And, and so the thing I would say most importantly is, you know, I've been involved with, uh, you know, conservation projects with Bufo Alvarius. I've been involved with conservation projects with peyote, even though that's not a medicine I work with, um, because it's, you know, I, I feel like it's not a sustainable medicine and I feel like there's alternatives and we need to keep that medicine for the indigenous peoples that use it in their sacred ceremonies. But um, I've also been working with Blessings of the Forest, which is the only organization that I'm aware of in Gabon that is planting iboga. And so one of the recommendations that they made is that I think I can't remember if it was three or five, but it was every time that you work with iboga, you should buy um, at least three to five plants and have them planted so that we can have it for future generations. And Mm -hmm. I would say even at the rapid rate that it's going, because, you know, you tell 10 people they're going to, you know, or let's say you tell a hundred people and then those people, 10 people go do it. Um, You know, we need to make sure that we're um, the plant itself takes seven years to mature, to harvest medicine, but the, the good medicine, which is like what I work with um, is, is 34 years old you know, 34 year old plants. So um, we want to make sure that those plants don't get like torn up and that things are being done in a good way. And we want to make sure that future generations of Bwiti will have medicine for their initiations. And then hopefully there'll be some leftovers for the rest of the world too. Thank you.
I just, I, I think it's so important what you're saying about really focusing on the sustainability. Mm-hmm. How would I go about buying three plants? Would it be through that organization that you mentioned? The only one that I know of right now is Blessings of the Forest. And mm-hmm. um, that that's really the only way that people listening that are not connected directly to someone and want to, to be support uh, supportive to the movement can do it through Blessings of the Forest. And, okay. you know, there are people who have tried planting in Costa Rica and other countries where the climate is favorable. Um, I've heard there's been some successes, um, but the plant itself is very hard to transport. And basically, it's this bush that has these little kind of yellow waxy fruits. And those are the seeds. And they kind of look like an avocado pit. So it's like kind of like looks like a yellow bell pepper, but it's shaped kind of like a like an eye. And it needs to stay moist in order to propagate. The best way for the plant to propagate, because the elephants um, in Gabon, they eat the fruit, mm. is when an elephant has eaten it and then it's it evacuated it and mm-hmm. that leaves a nice, uh, you know, uh, uh, soil for it to, to grow wow. in and nutrients mm-hmm. for it to grow in. And... Um, I love um, the idea of it growing other places and the chances that it's going to have the same alkaloid content are very low because it's, it's really the soil and the environment, its relationship with the Akume tree, its relationship with, um, which is the sacred tree where they, we get the resin to make the torches, its relationship with the elephants that pull on the plant mm-hmm. when they're taking the fruits and it makes the roots stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has a deep relationship with the forest and um, with, with everything in the jungle. And so when you take it out of that space, it definitely changes it. But I, I, I think that we do need to look at the future. We do need to look at, you know, I mean, number one, I mean, I was watching this, this documentary and I was seeing just, and I've, and I've seen this in Gabon, just like the massive amount of logging that's Mm. happening there where this, the whole forest is being uh, decimated and mostly uh, by China. Um, Mm. Like there's been mass and a small amount of it's been dedicated um, by the recent government for parks, but it's like a tiny, tiny amount. And there were some contracts for the trees um, that were already made with the government and, and China and other countries that they basically had to pay, they had to buy their way out of these contracts that they had made a long time ago. And so my dream and just on a bigger scale is like, let's preserve the jungles in Gabon and let's not see what happened in the Amazon. And, you know, the last few years happened in Gabon. I really want, um, you know, this is the home of these beautiful people, this beautiful culture that's been around since I believe the beginning of time. And I believe one of the oldest uh, lineages that is practicing with plant medicine. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious your take on the difference between working with the full plant with iboga versus alkaloids and the popularization of working with ibogaine for addiction is is really spreading quite rapidly. Are they using synthetic 
compounds, alkaloids? How does that, and, and what would be the main, main difference in your perspective of, of the experience? So, you know, just to speak to the plant, you know, there's over 30 known alkaloids in the plant. One of those alkaloids is abogaine. Those 30 known alkaloids work on every neurotransmitter system in the body. So in terms of like a complete holistic experience, um, you're getting so much more working with the whole plant. Now there is a method and I actually, I do this myself to make what's called a total alkaloid extract. And I do it myself with organic vinegar and I pull the alkaloids out and I do a concentrate in capsules and that can help people to get deeper into the medicine because sometimes what can happen is when you're working with the whole plant and let's say you're like halfway through the night and you're kind of like, oh, well, I'm not really having, you know, it's not really happening for me, but maybe that person wouldn't necessarily break through in the way that they would have the experience they need to really get the healing from the medicine. But um, the problem is if I gave them more root bark, they might either throw it up or they might, uh, instead of it actually inten- uh, increasing the intensity of the experience, it would just lengthen the experience, meaning more time um, until that person would get to sleep. And so they just mm-hmm. kind of be in that same place for a longer mm-hmm. period of time because, you know, the root bark, it's very um, fibrous and very, the body is not used to breaking down, you know, things like mm-hmm. that. It takes a while for it to have an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the abogaine is... You can either get it from the plant, which obviously is the worst way to do it because you're throwing away a lot of good stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that would be really sad because, you know, the, that's good, good medicine. And some people still do it that way. Although I highly discourage that the other way of doing it is what's called a semi-synthesis process. This plant is so sophisticated. It cannot be made by man. It, it can be made um, because there is another plant called uh, Volkanga in Volkanga Africana. And there's an alkaloid called uh, Volkangaline. And the Volkangaline is like one oxygen or hydrogen off from abogaine. And so by going through a um, process, a alchemical process, um, you know, in a lab, uh, they remove that and then it, and then it becomes abogaine. And, and, and I would love to also for sustainability, see lots of that plant also being, grown and and my I don't know a ton about Volkanja. I just know that um it's definitely more accessible it's definitely easier to grow um but that would also be I think a really important thing and I, I think the world needs more abogaine for sure I think that there's a lot of people that are really um i mean i I think like veterans that are addicted to opiates and Mm -hmm. actually worked at a program called the mission within where we actually worked with veterans uh special ops navy seals uh Mm -hmm. green beret different you know different departments of special ops veterans um working with them with with abogaine and Mm fargamio it was Mm -hmm. really profound work like really Mm -hmm 
really mm-hmm. um, to see the before and after. I mean, talk about if, if anyone will, will follow integration protocols, it's the Navy SEAL. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine. Really dedicated. Um, so we hear this term flood dose. When I was in my experience, I felt like I, I felt this moment where I felt the, the critical mass of alkaloids flooding my, my neurotransmitters. And it felt like this wave of like really bright white light in my, in my uh, like inner visual landscape. Um, can you describe what it means to have a flood dose? So a flood dose is typically like what is actually meaning to like detox out, um, reset the opiate receptors. And, and what that means is like you're taking a high enough dosage that you're resetting the addiction um, in the kappa opioid receptors of the body. Um, and it's also very intense. So yeah, it's definitely like flooding your body. Typically when someone is detoxing from opiate or, you know, any other form of detox, usually there's a lot of purging involved. Mm -hmm. Um, I've witnessed a few detoxes and they're not fun journeys. They're not Mm -hmm. definitely like getting whisked off into some place and seeing white light. Although some people do have um, really profound transpersonal experiences on abogaine. Um, You're just not getting a lot of the, the the alkaloids that create the visions like ibogaline you know, you're not getting those alkaloids. You're not having as much of that. I mean, even though you do have visions, um, it's not, not Mm. as, as pronounced. Mm. Um, what you were experiencing is something I, I have personally experienced and it's really almost like the entry into the spirit world. Like what, Mm. what it felt like. It's like with Iboga, you don't leave your body you more um, like you, like if you're in this waking dream. So like, it's what's called, uh, it's not a psychedelic. Iboga is what's called an onirphrenic, which means dream maker. And so the idea that you're in this dream state that you can open your eyes and, and the visions go away. But what happens is when you're taking these like higher doses or for someone who's sensitive in the medicine really obviously, because, you know, like I've seen people journey on like a spoonful of root bark and some people are that sensitive where they can just be, you know, travel right into the spirit world. But um, when you've gotten past the point of the medicine cleaning you, that's when you, when you start to journey. And so it sounds like to me that you were kind of cracking through like a bardo, you know, Mm -hmm. like going into another dimension. Interesting. I mean, I also purged four times during my journey and I don't struggle with full-blown addiction now, but I feel like part of the reason I had more of a challenging experience was because I've struggled with addiction for many years of my life. And now, you know, and that was the reason that I actually started doing research about five or six years ago on Iboga, because I was so curious about what would that feel like to have a total dopamine neuroreceptor site reset? Like, what would that experience really do? 
And so I'm curious, anything that you want to share around why, why this helps people with addiction, why we're seeing so many people go who have serious heroin addiction and how they're not going through weeks of withdrawal. They're, they're going and literally coming out clean within a few days. Um, I think part of the main issue of relapse is set and setting environment, going back into old environments where people are using but why why does this medicine work so effectively for helping people with addiction specifically? You know, there's two levels of that. One level is, you know, the idea of the physiological effects of addiction, which is, you know, basically the reset to the neurotransmitters, which is, is profound. It doesn't necessarily work for all things, like not all people who are addicted to tobacco who go and work with Iboga are going to stop smoking. Um, although what I noticed for me, cause I've always, I mean, I think our whole culture is addicted and I mm -hmm. think our whole culture is living. I mean, I really believe that the Western way of living is the way of addiction, which is this model of extractiveness, of seeking outside of yourself, of living outwardly versus inner resourcing. And I think we're all, you know, at different stages in our paths of getting closer and closer into our own balance within. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like what happens on the medicine, and this is what makes this medicine so profound is, I mean, a couple of things. One, you know, Gabor Mate, um, he is one of my favorite doctors related to the idea of why, why psychedelics in general work for people with addiction. And that is that we need to resolve the trauma. You know, we need mm -hmm. to go back to the original templates of when the trauma began and this medicine takes you in there. It's very common for people, not all people have this, to have a replay of kind of their life, like scenes in their life where they're shown by the medicine. And, um, you know, this is why this happened, or this is what this created in your life or, you know, kind of a, a reconciliation, so to say, of, of this past stuff. And then on top of that, on a physiological level, the medicine just, I don't know how it does it, but it gets into every nook and cranny of the body, into the biofilms, into the crystals of trauma that's calcified in all these different, you know, like if you think about a chart of like acupuncture and you think of all those acupuncture points and you think of where all those nadis are blocked mm -hmm. within or those nodes or whatever you want to call it are blocked within your body and it's going in and like the, the mugongo, which is the, the mouth harp that's most commonly used um, in the Gonde Misoko tradition, um, you know, many people, and I believe this, call it the chiseler because literally as they hear it making it sound, it's almost like there's like a little jackhammer in the brain, mm. like going in and kind of like scrubbing out all of the little kind of wrinkles in the brain where there's like stuff hanging out, hiding and, you know, I, one of the things in the the journey work that we do is you know first you know we go and we reconnect to the soul mm -hmm. and that's that's the most important part of of the psychological work and I have each person prepare questions 
that they have for the soul. Mm. And once you've made that link to your soul, and once you've really like anchored that connection, you don't want to do addictive patterns anymore because you, you, the thing that you really wanted, the thing that you were really hungry for was connection. And you get that connection through your soul. Mm, I so appreciate that response. I also had a lot of, of visions and seeing patterns. I saw this like rapid succession of, of images of my father enacting a whole bunch of different behavioral patterns. And you mentioned you struggled with eating disorders and I, I did as well for many years of my life. And I saw some of the root causes of that and but had no like strong sense of emotion. I just witnessed it and witnessed so much. It was like being in a lucid dream for so many hours. So there was so much content there. And part of this integration has just been a lot of like, how can I really nourish myself right now? How can I bring so much loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and just give myself a lot of space to breathe and to rest and to eat well. So I, I really appreciate all of that. In addition to someone being able to uh, go onto that foundation that you mentioned, Blessings of the Forest, I'm going to include that link. Um, I just want to touch on reciprocity and the importance of reciprocity. Do you have any other suggestions? I would love love more ideas. I'm definitely going to go on and and buy five plants so that they can be um, planted and, and um, support that in that way. But what are other ideas for people in terms of reciprocity? Yeah, I feel like, you know, when we when we do this work, there's many different exchanges that happen. And I feel that in our culture, the idea of getting healing and then paying a price, like it's it's very transactional. But in most cultures that, you know, the original peoples, um, indigenous cultures, there's always an ongoing exchange. You, you become in relation with each other. And, you know, it's very common, like when, when you live in a village, you know, you take care of your aunt and you take care of your uncle. Like if you kill an animal, you know, one leg is going to your uncle, one leg is going to your grandfather, one leg is going to your sons and, you know, so on and so forth. It's not like you came home and like, this is my deer that I killed. Like, like in our culture, we think about like the money in our bank account belongs to us. But when we think about this work and we think about the, the mabondo, the grace that it brings in our lives. Um, everyone's going through a hard time right now. And all the people in mm -hmm. the Amazon and all the people in Gabon, you know, mm -hmm. they're not having people flying in and doing ceremonies in the way that they were before. Mm -hmm. And so like thinking about the people that, that could use help that are doing this work that's so humble and, you know, they're not necessarily in it to, to make a big profit. And so I think like we have to think about that ongoing relationship is the most important thing. And, and also to answer your question, um, I usually like ask and listen, mm -hmm. like I, I tune into myself and I ask and I listen and not everyone can receive those clear messages but a lot of times, you know, synchronicities will show up that will kind of point you in the direction of what that looks like. And then I think the other thing is like one of the reasons why I started the nonprofit, which is the nonprofit that we brought 
you know, the Zulu tribe to Burning Man and what's the name of other projects? Um, Ancestral Heart. Okay. Ancestral Heart is the name of it. And um, the reason we started that was to bring elders on the stage, give them a platform and, and ask them these questions. And the funny story is like, even myself, gosh, I mean, I had answers in my own mind to some of the questions that I was asking the, the elders in, in these different panels that we did for the remote burn during Burning Man, we did um, a bunch of different events with with some elders, um, Mindahi, Bastida um, was one of them. He's like a Mayan um, elder, um, Jyoti Ma, who's like the head of the, um, she, she organized the 13 Grandmothers Council. And um, one of my teachers and, and healers, Aturangi Maru, who's Maori. Mm. And, you know, and, and a ton of others, but, but it was crazy because some of the questions that I asked them, I felt like I knew the answer. And then I was just completely humbled by the answers that they gave. Like for instance, um, you know, we were in South Africa and we created a, a group of people, um, created a declaration for protection of sacred sites mm-hmm. called the Asagaya, which was basically launched um, at Davos for the World Economic Forum last year beginning of 2020, when, when I asked these different wisdom keepers, how do we approach sacred sites? Like I was expecting them to say protocols and they, they were like, well, you don't go to them. <laughs> They're like, keep them sacred. They're like, if you do go to them, go and like do regenerative projects, obviously with the permissions of the people that are there, go and plant things and clean up trash and work the soil and, and all that stuff. So, you know, I really feel like we, I mean, I really feel like what's missing from our culture is this like kind of guidance mm. of having wise elders that can kind of help us direct us in the right direction. Cause even, even in doing a lot of work, you know, you still, it's surprising, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. how much, you know, you don't know, you don't know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I appreciate that perspective. And it's just amazing. You know, I heard, I heard what you did at Burning Man and I was like, you go girl. That's awesome. (laughs) I was like been, yeah, just following your journey from a distance and just so impressed and inspired by the work that you're doing. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, the, the term I love creative alchemy and how we can leverage any suggestions throughout our integration period to like open our creative channels. For me, I feel like the framework that, our culture has been in for a long time, especially in the new age spiritual community has been this idea of, you know, like I'm not whole, I need to be fixed. And, you know, like, and I think even like in doing medicine, drinking ayahuasca every weekend, you know, sometimes we can get stuck in these traps of like, I mean, you'll never run out of things to fix, you know, within yourself, like, oh, I want to change this and I want to fix this. But the idea of creative alchemy is, I believe that we were all brought here because we're souls. We're ultimately, our soul is perfect in every way. It All the stuff that, you know, you probably don't like about yourself is all connected with your ego, which means 
that it's stuff you can, you can, you know, work with in, in some respect, not all of it, you know, is, is necessarily malleable, but, but you can work with it. And so the way that we um, step into creative alchemy is the idea of stepping into complete alignment with our soul because the soul is the creator. And so the idea is when you empower your soul, basically every, everything that you've ever wanted to create, every like download, every vision, um, you, you, you get, you know, in a sense, like this energy from the universe to um, do it. Um, think of it almost like, you know, a loan funding or like a credit card, you know, of, but it's an energy bank. And then you use your soul and, and listen to your soul to get there and move through that process. But what happens is the ego, you know, kind of steps in and gets in the way. Now, that's the healing because everything that pops up along the way in the creative process, which is the ego, is the pathway mm. to your healing. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you align with your soul. You're not bypassing your soul. You're not bypassing your ego, but you're choosing to move towards your highest vision for your soul, your highest expression of the template that exists within you, which is the template of your soul. And then the ego stuff that comes up along the way, you just work on it as it comes up versus, you know, kind of this other approach mm -hmm. that kind of has been popularized. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is because obviously marketers make lots of money with people that have things to fix. Mm -hmm. And do you have, would you say any specific recommendations during the integration phase for how people can make peace with that? Yeah. You know, what I would say is, you know, again, it's really about what you focus on. So if you can do things that bring you joy, you know, part of relaxation and rest, you know, cause we're like, go, go, go all the time, pushing, not resting enough, having so many things on our plate, but that time where we rest, that's where we actually talk to our soul. That's where we actually receive information. And that's where we start to receive these downloads. So the more you can spend time being creative, mm -hmm. you can do things in nature, the more you're going to start to get those like downloads around um, what, what things really truly are your highest mm -hmm. um, things from your soul that you want to create. Mm -hmm. And once you feel like, clear on that, then you can start to move into your creative process by empowering uh, your soul to, to lead. I would love to sit with you, Trisha. I would love <laughs> to experience your format and your framework. Yeah, we use some, um, we actually use a combination of Fong and Masoko. What does that mean? When we're doing it because Fong, they believe that they came from Egypt, from the ancient mystery schools and you know, the lineage that I've been, I'm deeply connected with, with my, my family from, uh, my teacher at Tumurbenga. That's kind of just been like my soul family. And we actually went to Abydos together. We were in Egypt together. Wow. Um, uh, just last February. And, um, I definitely feel like that lineage did come from, <laughs> did come from, Egypt. Um, but the, so I use a lot of more like Egyptian alchemy 
um, rituals along with um, the stuff that I've learned in the, in the Gombe tradition. Mm. So like they don't use the torch as much in the Fong and they don't do the, the journey work. Um, How do people find you or get in touch with you? And how often are you holding retreats around this? We're in this time of still prohibition in the U.S., so I'm sure you're holding space outside of, of the U.S. where it's a little um, a little less dangerous for us to be doing this work. Yeah. How do people find you? Well, um, I have uh, my website where I do my retreats, which is psychedelicjourneys.com. And I also have... Uh, my Instagram, which is at Psychedelic Journeys. And with all the things that have been happening in the world, um, you know, obviously we're taking a break from our bigger retreats, but I've been doing some smaller retreats outside of the country and, you know, like Mexico and in Costa Rica. Now that they've, you know, opened the borders, I'm, you know, I'm still always open And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I just have such a long wait list now with, with everything having, I had a retreat, um, the day that lockdown started in March and it was crazy because the medicine told me, well, it it was just a crazy scenario because it basically protected me from obviously like having some problems. Like, you know, if you have to cancel something, a lot of times you lose, lose money and things like that. So But we're really excited to um, start doing retreats again in a safe way. And we've just kind of like been doing smaller groups. Usually I do like groups of 12 and I've been cutting it down to like eight to 10 and, Mm -hmm. you know, just providing a lot of distancing and obviously like, you know, having testing and different things in place, I think definitely helps. Um, but yeah, I would, I would love to work with you and hopefully, yeah, hopefully we'll be up and running again, um, really, really soon. Is there anything that you would like to share before we close? I know you're working on a book. When is your book going to be out? Um, do you have a working title for your book yet? Yeah. So my book is Traversing the Interverse, Plant Medicine, Ancestral Wisdom, and the Path to Transcendent Consciousness. And we talk all about the ego and the soul and how to traverse your interverse and how to connect, how to communicate with, with nature and about psychedelics and about integration and altered states of consciousness, but really all from the standpoint of Um, you know, I've worked with 1500 people in the last uh, six years and, um, just what I've learned, um, to be true about the nature of how we can get the most out of these experiences start to finish and how we can really, um, ground them into joy and abundance and manifestation Mm -hmm. in our lives. Mm, Okay, great. Well, it has been such a pleasure dropping in with you, Trisha. I really look forward to coming and checking out your retreat center, to journeying with you as well. Like I said, you're definitely a a badass woman on the path. And so I commend your leadership and all the work that you're doing. So thank you. 
Mm, you spot it, you got it. It's such amazing um, to see someone who's really stood out there. And I mean, you've done so much and, you know, you're holding so many codes, um, you know, with all the different uh, projects. I mean, I can't believe like you, you know, you've, you've had a retreat center all the way to like the podcast and all the other projects and just offerings that you've, you've brought so much to the community and it's such a blessing. So thank you. Thank you so much. That's so touching. Well, and received. Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, please feel free to reach out through my website, livefreelauraD.com, or reach out and say hi on Instagram at livefreelauraD. If you've been enjoying these episodes, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with a friend who you think might be interested or leave me a review on iTunes. That would be such a huge help and such a big support, and I would appreciate it immensely. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.